Hello, welcome to the Indie Memphis podcast. I'm Miriam Bale. I'm the artistic director of Indie Memphis. We're an arts organization in Memphis. And through our artist development, youth filmmaking, year-round programming, annual film festival, and now our newly launched podcast, we're working to change the film landscape. Our first guest is Nikiatu Jusu, who has a new film called Nanny, which is premiering at the Sundance Film Festival on January 22nd. We at Indie Memphis are lucky enough to be part of the Sundance Film Festival this year. And from January 28th to January 30th, you can catch premieres of brand new Sundance films at the Crosstown Theater. Please check our website for more information on tickets. And now let's get into the conversation. Hello, Nikiatu. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's an honor to have you for our first guest. Not only are you a filmmaker and a teacher and a scholar, uh, but you are just one of my favorite thinkers and talkers. And uh, I love hearing your opinions about everything. So oh, I really want to. <laughs> <laughs> I know that means you're about to give me some questions that are going to get me in trouble. I know what that means. <laughs> well, anything you, you just feel comfortable, anything you want to say, you know, we'll, if you, if we'll, we'll leave it private if it needs to be, but feel comfortable saying whatever you want to say, but let's get into it. Let's, let's get into, um, nanny, which is a drama, um, which uses, uh, supernatural horror elements in a really interesting and innovative way and um i i really i'd like to talk about um where when did you what, how did you find the balance of the the character study and these supernatural elements did you feel any pressure to lean either way one or the other that's a good question. So um, as you all may or may not know, I know you know probably Miriam, but we incubated this project in a few labs. And so I had the pleasure of going through the screenwriters lab at Sundance and Nakia, my producer did the producing lab with the same project. And then I also did on top of that, the director's lab uh, for the same project. So I was able to not write in a vacuum or conceive of the project in a vacuum towards the tail end, because this is something that I've been working on and chipping away at for around eight years. Um, but what I found interesting was like there was a schism between people and mentors who wanted to be have their hands held through the mythology a lot more. And then people who were like, you know what, I don't need to know everything. What I do need to know is why this haunting? Why now? Why for Aisha? And so I leaned into, you know, trying to to make the haunting align with my protagonist's journey as opposed to holding people's hands through what this mythology means, because Anansi and Mamiwata are two very complicated, nuanced uh, figures in the African diaspora with many names throughout the African diaspora. And so I never want to take on the burden of, of feeling like I have to explain everything in one film because it's impossible with these figures. So yeah, it was an ongoing challenge, but ultimately I hope 
that I struck a balance between being really pedantic about what these figures mean versus um, focusing on my protagonist's journey. Well, the protagonist situation is a real experience for so many and told, I think, so elegantly about, um, you know, that horror of uh, feeling like you're going crazy or could go crazy with this internal anger, but you did a, such a good job of representing that horror as something systematic. Thank you. You know, uh, so one thing that I've, uh, Safi Faye, the Senegalese filmmaker, one of the few African women filmmakers who is acknowledged um, in sub-Saharan Africa has a quotation around um, once you create the, once I create my films, they no longer belong to me. They are now, they now belong to the audience and I don't have to explain or defend when the film is strong. And so I'm thinking about, you know, now that I've created this piece, regardless of my intentions, people are inherently going to inject, um, their POV and their lenses into their viewing experience. However, it is important for me to say that, I never wanted the haunting to feel like Aisha brought it with her into, into this space, into America, into Amy and Adam's condo. It's something, the haunting is a, a direct product of the both the systematic and, and the personal obstacles that she's navigating in this story. Like African women come to America or immigrant women in general come to America for more opportunities. Why? Because their na native countries are impoverished. Why? Because imperialism and colonialism, like this is uh, something that, that has a domino effect. These things are not happening in a vacuum. Cause and effect is really important to understand. So yeah, I'm glad that you noticed to some degree that the haunting is part of, is also a product of what she's navigating in America now as not just African, not just part of the tribe that she's affiliated with, but now the blanket umbrella of being just Black in this country um, and, and what that comes with and being a Black woman domestic worker and being an, an undocumented immigrant domestic worker. So all of those things are part of the haunting. The haunting is a consequence of, of these systematic structures. Beautifully said. Um, yeah, it's so real. Any park and uh, and a park slope filled with uh, immigrant nannies with their own children paid in cash. It's it's such a real phenomenon explored um, so intricately. Um, I want to talk about some of those intricacies. Um, I was so uh, I was so blown away by the use of texture and light from the beginning of the wallpaper to the the bright blinding light of the loft. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how texture is important to you. And specifically, did you find that wallpaper or did you create it? Which one, the one in the in Aisha's home? Yes. That's a good question. So I'm, I'm so happy you asked this because not only is my DP for this film, Rena Yang, brilliant, but also my production designer, Jonathan Guggenheim, he also worked on Scream as the art director and the latest iteration of Scream. And um, we, the wallpaper was there already in this space. And we leaned into that because he understood, like we interviewed so many people for all these different positions 
And Jonathan was the production designer who stood out to me as someone who got it and uh, but also had his own ideas about the colorscape and the palette. And so we just leaned into the texture and the color in her African and Black world versus the relative sterility of her world when she's working for Amy and Adam. Um, but also not making it like completely bereft of color because Amy and Adam are attempting to splash their space in color and their world in color, but it's it rings a little bit hollow. So that is a, a motif that was really important to us. And um, Rena is just really, and her team were just so brilliant about carving with light. And I, I really wanted a DP. And I'm, again, another person who I'm glad chose me back because the competition was stiff, especially for the DPs that we were interviewing. I There's so many talented cinematographers out here who want to do stuff that they feel like is pushing the envelope. But Rena understands the nuances of Black skin and lighting and shooting the, the different uh, complexions of Black skin and, and not just making all Black people kind of this darkness that blends into the shadows, but really taking the time to carve out the different uh, variations of brown that we come in. So that was really important as well against the backdrop of texture. I love texture. I love color. I grew up in a Sierra Leonean, Atlantan, Southern world, uh, born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. And between my Black American friends and my diasporic African uh, friends and my African family, like just color was always around us. I, even that line in the film when she says, this dress was made for your skin, mahogany and imperial red. <laughs> That's so rich. And <laughs> it's so rich with meaning. You know it. Like, all yeah. the meaning of that. Um, I want to ask, um, so that's so interesting to hear about the collaboration with your production designer and um, and you and with the DP. Um, that first scene of, um, and you, we, we see it in the costumes as well, I think, like when we first see, um, when uh, we first see in the loft the, this, the white silk outfit with the bright light, like you're just so aware of um, of, um, money, wealth, just, mm -hmm. there's so much told in the costumes. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. You know what? Uh, I'm so glad I was literally in my brain, like, oh my God, I, I didn't say Charlize's name, Charlize Antoinette, who was our costume designer, which was another position that was, we interviewed a lot of people for every, all of our department heads for obvious reasons, but I am very meticulous and intentional about who I choose to collaborate with. And I'm I'm so fortunate that these people chose me back because I think they're all masters of their craft. Like I'm not the filmmaker that's like, it has to be the original vision that I intended. I love when people come in and challenge me and make me think differently about what I wrote or what I'm directing. And Charlize is just, she also worked on Judas and the Black Messiah. She was also the costume designer for that film and a, and a handful of films. Um, but she also gets the nuances of what it means to look moneyed, um, but also in a way that's not caricature um, versus uh, these African communities that sometimes throw on a T-shirt with a lapa. You know, you have the texture of a lapa and a regular American T-shirt, the bridging of these cultures and these the ways that 
your wardrobe even changes when you come to this country in different ways, especially in New York. New York is like one of my favorite cities to just observe fashion and the different uh, microcosms of fashion. But yeah, so Charlize was an inherent organic part of the process with Jonathan and Rena, like my department heads engaged with each other heavily in, in prep. And so we all understood some of the palettes we were thinking about. I remember Jonathan bringing me a, a palette, like a, a board, a conceptual board, and there were a lot of reds and a lot of greens. And I was worried about Christmas <laughs> being, uh, I never thought that you could juxtapose those colors and not convey Christmas. Like it, it just really sings with the greens and the reds that we have in this film, particularly in Aisha's world. But yeah, Amy had some amazing outfits that were beautifully worn and beautifully tailored. And um, we just had an intricate process for the whole uh, costume designing team. You, you, uh, there was just so many smart people on that team as well. So much comes through in that. Um, um, yeah, I'm glad to talk to you about that. I also want to talk to you about one of the most indelible images for me, one of the most moving images is of Aisha singing to the frozen FaceTime image. Was that in the script or did that come along in the end or or did that come along in the process? That's in the script. It's so beautiful. So beautiful. Thank you, Miriam. Um, so I, something I, I am hesitant to bring up the name of this movie <laughs> because everything gets compared to Get Out. But uh -huh. something that I always thought about Get Out is, you know, it's thought of as like, you know, a great, um, you know, horror about black culture. But I always really think of it as it's a comedy that is um, a parody of whiteness more so mm -hmm. than about blackness. And I feel like your film as a drama instead of a comedy also leans into some of that parody of whiteness. Was that, um, or not parody of whiteness, but of white culture. Um, was that something you thought about? You know, I didn't, so I didn't, uh, of course the get out comparisons came early in our pitching process, which I, I'm not mad at it. Like I, I, Jordan Peele, I love his work. I love what he's doing. I love monkey paw and the ways that they champion um, black filmmakers who want to work within genre. So I'm never going to scoff at that comparison. And he is someone who paved the way for those of us who want to work in that realm. Um, with that being said, I didn't, I didn't think about Get Out as, as a direct inspiration for this, but I did, I just, hmm, I've been trying to think of how to talk about this, but I, I have been in predominantly white spaces for my entire life. So starting in, um, starting in like high school, starting in middle school, I was in predominantly white schools throughout. Then I went to Duke undergrad, then I went to NYU grad film. Uh, then I worked in a lot of, I was just often the only uh, black woman, the only black person or one of three or um, one of a few handfuls of the people of color. So. I know white people very well. <laughs> All that to say, I know them very, very well. Um, and I think to some degree, you know, as someone who had to maneuver these spaces that were sometimes really full of microaggressions that chipped away at you, that you couldn't quantify, that you couldn't prove. I can't prove that uh, 
you know, Janet is racist. I don't have, she didn't call me the N word, but, you know, she's doing these little things that are, that are chipping away at me daily. Um, so I'm more interested in the nuances of the microaggressions and the way they accumulate and the way that they, in the face of that, oftentimes, particularly Black women have to be stoic because we, so many of us fear the, the stigma of the quote unquote angry Black woman. And so um, that was something that I was thinking about in, in terms of just trying to convey the banality of some of these racist microaggressions. And one thing I found interesting in some of these mentorship programs for the script is that a lot of some of the white women mentors really responded to Amy in a way that was like a knee jerk reaction. They were repelled. They they didn't like the character, the character that I wrote. They felt like she was too one one woman whose advice I didn't really value um, told me that. And she's a she's a prominent, not prominent, but she's a working screenwriter was very, she said, why is she falling apart all the time? Why is she so delicate? And it's like, well, that this is the way that a lot of you seem to us in these workspaces. Like, this is the way we feel like a lot of you are unable to handle the, pres handle the pressures that we have had to learn to accept that are just inherent to being a marginalized person in this world. And so the smallest thing, yeah, we feel like it makes you fall apart. Um, and oh so that Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just thinking about that women bonding scene, that women bonding scene where they were like, you know, we're the same. We have to, what yeah. did she say? She, like, it's so You know what it's like, it's a scene. boys club. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And she's like, it's a boys club and it's, and it's so clear, so different. I'm sorry I interrupted you. you no, no, no. More about Amy. Like, that's so interesting that there was a knee jerk reaction to the Amy. And yeah, there were a few, there were a lot. And, and it was like, I'm thankful that I'm a mature filmmaker entering the industry now because it's really easy to cave if you don't know who you are and you don't know the story that you're trying to tell into some of these notes. But you have to separate the notes that are extremely biased and through a specific lens versus the notes that are truly trying to lean into the story that you are trying to tell through your lens. And so I was often navigating that. That's so interesting. When Boots Riley came for our first Black Creators Forum, he said that um, that was really, as much as we love the Sundance labs and these other labs, that what he learned in some of these labs was um, how not to listen to certain people too, <laughs> that sometimes people really don't know what they're talking about, especially when it comes to um, something that's outside their experience. Right. No, you know what? I was lucky. I, I got Sundance really equipped me with some amazing mentors. I had Corinne Kusama, who did the invitation and, and Jennifer's Body. I had Casey Lemons, who did Eve's Bayou, one of my favorite films. Like they were really strategic, particularly in the director's lab of pairing us with people who understood our lens. So that was really important. But yeah, like no matter if it's any of the, I can name a list of 10 labs. There are so many great labs, but if you don't know how to differentiate between bias and notes that are attempting to meet you where you are, it's, it's going to be a hard journey for you as a creator. Yeah. And you talked about, um, you talked about, uh, you know, the, the, 
being when you were at India Memphis, you were on a panel of Black women directors, and unfortunately for Black women directors, I mean every week is a first. Do you know what I mean? Like there's like a <laughs> yeah. first woman doing something, which is cool, I guess. But it is, you know, we are all like in this pioneering territory, unfortunately. And mm -hmm. um, great this summer was you and. Um, another favorite director, Numa Perrier, both yes. filming these films in, in New York. So exciting. Um, but I wonder if you, if you find, I know not as a director, but just as a woman, black woman leader, some people are unaccustomed to having mm. black women leaders and deal with it. Um, like you were just saying with like the Amy character, or just um, are unaccustomed to that. Is that something that you found moving from a short to a feature, bigger, bigger cast and crew, um, lots of other people? Is it, um, sorry to ask so directly, but- No, that's fine. It, is it? <laughs> Go, <laughs> this, is an important, this is an important question to answer, Miriam. And- Yes. So, so people at every step of this journey, uh, some people are just so, I was telling, so my producing partner, Nakia Molteri, who's literally my left, left side of my body for these films, she, she produced Suicide by Sunlight, the short, and she produced Nanny and, and we're, we're rising together. Like we definitely are clear about wanting to bring each other up. Um, we have maneuvered so much in terms of people sitting across from us, mostly white. And just the first few minutes of the interaction, it, you can tell is them processing these two black women, talking to them in this way, like it very clear about what we want and what we need, what resources we need and uh, being armed with our the knowledge we have. Like the first few minutes of so many interactions in my creative process are, I can tell people are just processing the person in front of them that they're not accustomed to seeing in this leadership position. And it wastes so much time because you find yourself repeating things and, you know, people aren't really hearing you. Uh, VFX is, is a beast, you know, and it fantasy, creating fantastical films with a lot of VFX keeps so many marginalized filmmakers out because of the price point. It's expensive. And most of the people we engage with in the VFX realm are white men. And um, so that's another beast in terms of like, we can't use this coloration for the scaling on this Mami Wata Mermaid because it doesn't, it makes her brown skin look ashy. Like you need to find an undertone that speaks to the color of her melanated skin, like the, just little things like that, that you're maneuvering with VFX, but just bigger in terms of a more general conflict. Yeah, I had some, I, I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. I had some people in G&E for my feature that were just, and Grip and Electric is, is mostly who are unionized are mostly white men. So you're going to have these white men in GNE who have never really engaged with a black woman, let alone a black woman who is at the helm of the project that they're lugging equipment around for or setting up lighting for. And I bump heads with a few of the white men in GNE for my own shoot. I actually had to, um, I actually had to, anyway, I, I had some conflicts with, with a few of the white men in GNE. And it's dangerous because they can undermine your shoot 
So we had a one really late night and um, people were intentionally speaking through talking through takes, you know, and we were already pushing the envelope in terms of how late we were shooting. So I don't think people think about the ways that it's not just about, oh my God, I'm a white guy who's used to taking direction from other white guys or at least white women. And now, um, now I have this black woman in front of me, I have to adjust. It's not as simple as that. Like people can literally undermine your progress in these really insidious ways. And so it's not the whole GE team. Like there were people who were super apologetic and didn't understand what was happening, but I had enough to cause like a little domino effect that interfere with our progress. But we, we quickly, uh, remedied the situation. Uh, thankfully I'm supported so much by our producing partners and they heard me clearly when I said, I don't want X person back on my set. I am, uh, so sorry you went through that and, um, unfortunately not so surprised. I'm glad it was handled well, but I just want to thank you so much for your honesty and thank you for kicking off our podcast. I can't imagine a better person to start um, the themes of what we want to talk about. Congratulations so much. Thank you, Miriam. Great questions. Thank you. (laughs) And I I hope I get to see you in person this year. Me too. Me too. All right. Thanks again. Thanks everybody. All right. Thanks all.